0: Sir, welcome to the Man on Second podcast on Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Joe forsaro joined as always by Dave D'Agostino, our co-host and producer of our fine show here at Real Voices of the Game. Uh, happy New Year, everyone. We're, I'm pretty excited. This is the first podcast, Man on Second, back since uh, the holidays, first of the new year. And we are going to come in strong with an outstanding guest, someone I've been looking forward to all week to talking to. Uh, Oakland A's scout John Hughes. We'll get to John in a minute. Uh, uh, he has some great stories. He's the scout who uh, who drafted, who got the Expos to draft Tom Brady back in the day. And we'll talk about that and more. Uh, what a week of sports, especially in the football world, college football with all the the coaches leaving, uh, Saban and in the pros, obviously Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll. We'll, we'll touch on a lot of things here. But but before we dive into there, uh, let's bring in Dave. Dave, how you doing?
1: Great, thanks, Joe. Yeah, I know. I thought of you went Alabama when Nick Saban retired. I know you're a Roll Tide, so I uh, I'm curious to see who they're going to sign. And uh, yeah. we've had we've had some eventful stuff happen in our two week hiatus. Our audience grew to sixty four thousand. Um, we just replayed shows, so we've got a great support. Picked up two three new sponsors, and we'll we'll play their ad reads in a second here. Uh, but first, I want to just introduce Jaw Bats, our newest baseball sponsorship. Uh, They're the newest certified bat in Major League Baseball. You'll see them in spring training this year. Our very own Jeff Fry is using one at the Boston Red Sox fantasy camp coming up. And then my son Tanner grabbed one as well. And he's using his and his his, uh, most recent workouts, tryouts, and games. So they love it. It's maple. But if you use RVG at checkout, you'll get 20% or I'm sorry, 15% off of anything they have, their bats and otherwise, all their apparel. So Jaw Bats, great partner. Blackout Coffee, as we know, we've been with them for a bit now. Be awake, not woke. Use Joe F, all capitals with the number 20 after it. For your first purchase only, all purchases after, use Joe's link. It'll get you 15% off. We've had some mistakes with that with customers trying to use the 20% off every time. 20% once, use the link afterwards. It'll get you 15% off in perpetuity. And uh, Liquid IV and Zencaster, our very own Zencaster, Joe. They, they, uh, they didn't get too fed up with this rookie producer you got on your hands with me, but they said, hey, let's give these guys a sponsorship. So Liquid IV and Zencast will be doing that ad read. We ask our listeners, don't fast forward through it 90 seconds apiece. Support the people that are supporting us, and uh, we'll continue to grow. So with that, Joe, ready for the, the ad read here? Yeah, let's bring it in. I want you to guess who it is at the end, though. Okay. Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being. Their hydration multiplier is a great tasting non-GMO electrolyte drink mix powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water alone. Hydration isn't only for people training for championships and marathons. It's about daily maintenance. I use it when I travel, watch my kids play in soccer or basketball games, back for back-to-back conference calls, or even neighborhood walks. Proper functional hydration is essential, and Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. For me, it's the Liquid IV flavors. They offer 12 unique flavors, from strawberry lemonade to Concord grape, my favorite, acai berry. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. It contains five essential vitamins with three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. It's made from quality ingredients, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. That's why I'm asking you, take a look at this. This is for real people. It's got real flavors. It's real hydrating. And you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code RVG at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you stop When you shop Better Hydration today, using our promo code RVG at liquidiv.com. Zencaster. How to start podcasting with Zencaster. It's now the all-in-one solution making podcasting easy. It's the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Being a creator has never been easier. Why did I choose Zencaster? Three years ago, I had never listened to a podcast. Now I've successfully produced almost 400 podcasts in the last two and a half years, all using Zencaster, and it's so easy. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away record studio quality sound, and up to 4,000 videos with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencasters multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. And it's all-in-one. If you have thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencasters all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all-in-one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple and other major destinations. What am I asking from you? Go to zencaster.com/pricing and use my code all capitals RVG and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.
0: Wow, well, I could tell at first at first I thought it was Don Pardo but um then my second guess is that's Dave Dagostino who's over there who's uh you know he can do a lot of a lot of voiceovers and 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 do a lot of ads.
1: You didn't think that was George Clooney? Somebody said George Clooney the other day.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I knew it was you right away the all first right. time I heard it a couple of weeks ago. But, but hey, without further ado, the reason I brought a footballer for one is football season still. That's you know we're all excited to get baseball going, but it is football. You know the playoffs are about to start. Got me thinking. You know, Dave. Right as so I'm like, who do I want to have to be the first guest of the new year? Then I'm like, who is baseball and has a good football story? And the name immediately jumped out at me, John Hughes, who I've uh, known John a long time. John goes back to the Montreal Expos, Mar- the Marlins, and then most recently last few years with the Oakland A's. But uh, when John was in Montreal, 1995, I believe was the year, drafts a catcher out of, I think, what, Sierra High School out in California, a catcher named Tom Brady who had other ideas and uh, and we're going to get that story uh, right now, but let's first catch up with John and bring in John Hughes. John, thanks so much for joining us. Happy new year, my friend.
2: Thank you very much, Joe, for, uh, for having me. Happy new year to you guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's kind of jump in before we get to the Brady stories. Kind of, uh, you know, alert people, uh, of what, what you do, the role of scouts, kind of an overview, uh, you know, uh, my last guess of the old year of 23, I brought my son in who's a scout with Arizona. He kind of, uh, laid down the young, the young scouts path to, to the big leagues, how he got there. Um, and just kind of, you know, you know, tell people a little bit about, you know, what you do, your role, cause you've done a little bit of everything, um, and, and just kind of, uh fill people in on, on what it's like to be a scout out there in
2: California with the A's. Sure. I'll do the best I can with that. I, I uh, it took me a while to get into scouting. I actually, um, I've been very fortunate in being in baseball my entire life, but, um, shortly after I got done playing at the university of California, I got a job as the pitching coach at with Cal and, and with the head coach, Bob Milano, who's a Hall of Fame coach and took us to the College World Series a couple of times. So I, I did that for 12 years. And then I took a couple of years off where I just uh, did private lessons and actually coached in the Cape Cod, which was a wonderful experience. Uh, I was there for three years. And Jim Fleming had called me the at that time. the uh, uh, He would be the West Coast supervisor for the Expos. He and I coached together. Uh, at Wareham in uh, Cape Cod in 1990 and he'd called me several times about getting into scouting and I was like I don't think so I think I'd stay with I love coaching and so on and so forth but finally in 1993 I caved and so that's uh that's when I started and and honestly the entire time from 1993 till uh through the Marlins Expos and then until I got to the A's in 2020, I was the Northern California area scout, which you know my area was Northern Cal, Northern Nevada, which was really Reno and Sparks, and I also had Hawaii. Um, so, you know, but that was but my but my passion in it, and the and my I I guess if you will the expertise in what I do in scouting, I've always felt was pitching because that was my background, and uh, so the the Expos and Marlins from time to time would pull me out of my area and let me cross check to do and to go see pitchers across the country, which was always wonderful. And, it and it would open up your eyes to, you know, really what, how those guys compared to the guys that I had in my area. So, I mean, that's kind of how I got in it and, and what I've done. And now with the A's, I, that is my title. I'm a, I'm a pitching cross checker, although I have spent most of my time in the West coast, um, the four corners and the northwest and, and California and doing doing cross checking pictures. So that's kind of where I'm at and um I've got to
0: oh yeah a great fascinating story. And and, you know, John is a baseball lifer, you know, and and once it gets in your blood, you know, obviously my path was in the journalism side. But the sports, you know, I did NFL for over 10 years and then, you know, baseball and over, for over two decades. And it's funny you bring up Jim Fleming's name because I was talking to Stan Meek the other day. And and I'm going to reach out to Jim at some point, try to get Jim on the show, Jim, for our audience uh, he used to basically run the the Marlins j- draft and minor league system for a number of years. Did a similar thing with the Expos. Uh, great guy. Lives in Oklahoma, much in, along with Stan. But um, uh, as we get kind of the background there, take us through because you know, John. You know, you, you you answered this. I've done stories on this with you in the past, written stories. Now our audience, if they're not familiar with it, uh, take everyone through the Tom Brady story because you know that is such a unique story to have seen you know, arguably the greatest quarterback and maybe the greatest NFL player of all time. Um, and you could have been the guy that screwed that all up and got him wearing a baseball uniform, and we wouldn't have known how that went. So take everyone back to uh, to the Tom Brady days.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because going, in, going into Tom's senior year of baseball, um, we knew his name, but, you know, he was – you know, we would, there wasn't travel ball and and all that type of stuff at that point in time. I mean, guys played American Legion ball or Joe DiMaggio or whatever it might be, and and the exposure to that was not as great. In fact, more times than not, um, in the summer of those days, uh, scouts all had pro coverage, and so we really weren't around to scout guys in the. Uh, you know, in the in the uh, summer, a lot, and 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 Tom was focused on football. So, they did have a they did have a, a prospect there named Greg Milichap that that you know we I went in to specifically go see, but I had heard about Brady, and I was friends with I was friends with his head coach, and he goes, "You need to pay attention to our catcher." Well, so I, when I went in there, you know, the first time I went down in the cages with him, and I mean, he was. He was six foot three, you know, was a projectable body and you're and left-handed hitter and going, he, he definitely was an eye catcher. And then so subsequently, you know, I, I called Jim Fleming and said, you know, of course, on those days we wrote our, all of our reports were handwritten and they went on three carbon copies. So it'd take a while for my report to get to Miami from out here. But, um, mm-hmm. but, but Jim had, Jim had called me when he saw my report and and he goes, well, I'm definitely going to want to see that guy when I come out there. So that's kind of where that whole thing started. And uh, and so then Jim eventually came out and, and saw him. And when he was done with that, he goes, we're going to draft this kid. So, I mean, at that point, too, I mean, everybody pretty much knew that Tom was probably or most likely going to go to Michigan to play football. But nonetheless, we thought we'd roll the dice and see what happens with it.
0: And well, I think it was like an eighteenth or so rounder. And you know, take us through that um, you know, the to pull the trigger right then and there, what what those what that would have been like.
2: Well, he okay, so he was he was an eighteenth rounder and um and he went to he went to Sarah High School in San Mateo. Well, Sarah Sarah High School has had some pretty famous people like Barry Bonds, uh Jim Fergosi back in the day, Lynn Swan went there there I mean it, it's real noticeable, but in the scouting world, there was a scout that went to school there named Gary Hughes and uh and so after we drafted tom and and Tom became famous in football and that whole story started to come out it took years before everybody actually realized that it wasn't Gary Hughes it was and you know because that's a natural assumption with uh, a Hall of Fame scout but um, so anyhow, but when, but when we took him in the 18th round, the only reason why Tom went in the 18th round was because of his his difficult signability and the, and the assumption that he was going to go to Michigan to play football. He that's not the way that he was evaluated. I would probably say that the report that the report that I wrote and where he would fit in nowadays draft based upon that would probably be second round. So he was a he was a legitimate prospect. So, you know, from our end, we didn't feel that there was much risk that we were taking him. Obviously, you know, you never want to take a kid in the top 10 rounds and not sign him, but, you know, to take him in the 18th round, there wasn't much risk. And and so we took him, and, and Kevin Malone, who was the scouting director, then said that uh, let's let's just see what happens. Let's take a shot, and I'll give you some money, and you can see how that goes and play it out. And when we come out there, we'll bring him out to the – to Candlestick Park and let him take BP with the team. So that's kind of how that whole thing started to progress.
0: Yeah. Fun stuff. Uh, Dave, you want to jump in?
1: Yeah. You know, John, a lot gets, like it's, I guess, made light of in terms of Brady's athleticism, that that video that goes wild every time there's the draft combine of him running and he's got his shirt off and they, they chronicle him as non-athletic I mean you've talked a little bit too but could you dispel that myth right here to get drafted that high as an NFL quarterback and then you know you're saying he's a second rounder he had to be a pretty good athlete
2: yeah I mean well first of all too I mean he was a catcher and he could throw and he was very accurate he blocked balls well he had power from from the left-handed side and you know it takes a pretty good athlete to move around behind home plate too And, um, you know, was he was he developed like he became once he got into pro ball? No. And uh, I mean, that was one thing that was intriguing to to me about him, too, was that, you know, he was relatively undeveloped other than I mean his size. And then when I say undeveloped, he just he was a great looking kid. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, there was just a lot of room for him to get stronger and get bigger and better. And so, you know, and I think that there's other things too that guys do now that they develop better foot speed and so forth. But I mean to, to drop back and be a passer and play in the NFL and 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 that coupled with a really good projectable catcher, you, you got to be a pretty good athlete.
1: Who would you? Comp, I know it's probably unfair to ask, but do it anyway. See so who would you comp him to the a current former major league catcher?
2: Um, the one that I, you know, obviously he came after Tom. But I mean, uh, of course, all these conversations about Tom. Came after, but I, but I, it was Joe Mauer.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to guess. And he and he was a lefty. Hitter, the size and the
2: swing, uh, John. Yeah, real, similar size, left-handed hitter. You know, and the the other thing too is is that Tom was a lot more vocal in the NFL that I remember him being on the baseball field. But the one thing that about that I remember about Joe, when I saw Joe Mauer in high school, and then. Watching Tom is just just their presence and how they they both seem to make the baseball diamonds seem small. And there just was this—you could tell that they commanded respect of their team, and uh, and uh, that was—it was very very evident. And I and I and I say to this day that the most impressed Tom Brady was the most impressive high school kid that I've ever been around. It, it was pretty. It was pretty evident actually when uh, when we brought him into Candlestick Park and uh took him into the locker room. Um it was it was evident that he was pretty comfortable in a in a professional locker room.
0: Talk about that experience, John. You know, just obviously you get a kid that you're you're, hit, you're hitting in a, at the time of the home of the Giants, the a big league park, a park with a lot of history. Uh, and just to put a 17, 18 year old in that environment, clearly to be showcased as, a, as a baseball player, uh, t- take us through that day.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty funny day actually. But, uh so at the time that we brought him in there, um, I had developed, um, a friendship, so to speak, and mostly it was my 12 year old son, but uh, with Rondell White and, and, and FP Santangelo was, those are the guys that I really knew on the team, which honestly, as you know, from covering the Expos, that was, that was a pretty loaded, talented group of guys at that time. But, uh, so we brought him into the locker room and, you know, put him in a uniform and so on and so forth and introduced him to Rondell and Rondell, Took him around a little bit, and and so then when we wandered out to take BP and put him in a hitting group that I know that I remember for sure that Larry Walker was in there, and and you could tell that Tom was nervous, and it was one of those it was one of those nights that you could get at Candlestick Park where like nobody really wants to play baseball. It's foggy, it's windy, it's cold, and it was very difficult to hit the ball out. But Tom would, was kind of taking his time in the cages and Larry, Larry kiddingly just goes, Hey kid, let's go. You need to pick up the pace and you're your cuss your and the swings. Let's go, let's go, let's go. You know? And so anyhow, so Tom, Tom kind of sped things up and, and that broke the ice with him. But we, uh, when he came back in the locker room, um, I saw him, he was sitting over in front of a guy sitting on a bench in front of a guy's locker room. And there was about, there was about seven or eight expos just standing around him. I mean, he's a great looking kid. He caught their eye and they started asking him questions. And they're so they're kind of like he's kinda of like he's holding court over there. And uh I wandered over there and uh and so one of the guys said, Wait, wait a second, you you mean to tell me you have a scholarship to play football where? And uh, and he goes, Well, the University of Michigan. And they go, The big house? He goes, you're gonna you need to go go to college. Don't you're going to go play in the big house. You're crying out loud. You want to drive on a bus and eat peanut butter sandwiches and so forth. And I started laughing. I went over to Kevin. I go, I don't think these guys are helping us very much here, but, uh, but you could tell that he just acted like he belonged in the locker room. He was comfortable and just engaging. So it's fun stuff. Dave.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, I when you mentioned Mauer, that was my f- thought as well, just the size and the lefty stroke alone. And, and as being a part of those early Expos teams, they're legendary for how they sifted through, you know, the, the country and found unhidden talent. And it's almost sad that, that we saw them, them. I don't want to say go away, because it, you know, went down to Florida, but what, what made that Expos experience so special? How, how did they, what was the magic sauce there, with finding all that talent and developing it? You know,
2: I mean, so – 1993 was my first year, and I looked at looked at those names, and I and I actually I actually was fortunate that a couple of times that the the expos brought me down and ha- ha- allowed me to coach in the uh, in instructional league. And I remember the first time I went down there, there was Vladimir Guerrero, there was Jeremy Powell, there was uh, Javi Vasquez, there was I mean it was just on and on and on, but. The one, the one thing that, and and of course their big league team of 1994 with Marquise Grissom and Larry Walker and John Wetland and you know uh, Pedro Pedro was was coming up, but the one thing about all those that, that they did is they were athletes, really good athletes. I mean, Cliff Floyd was there, like I said, and Rondell White earlier, but they, that's what the Expos did. They were they were drafting athletes, and sometimes they weren't as Refined, and it took a little bit of time to let them allow them to develop and get to their tools. But but that that was one thing that was the one thing that stood out about about the Expos organization at that time.
0: You know, it, it's interesting you mentioned the word athletes, John, because yeah, I was wanting to touch on that. And it's, it's been a topic on, on a lot of the other shows. Dave, Dave addresses it a lot uh the two po the two sport or multi sport athlete. Uh Brady clearly was someone who could have carved two professional sports paths. Um how much do you value it? Uh
2: I I highly recommend the kids to play multiple sports. I think it develops a well round well-rounded athlete. Um you learn things playing basketball that you don't in baseball, but in, um You know, just the idea that you got to step to the free throw line for a one on one with five seconds to go in the game. I mean, there's a different there's a different mentality of each sport and there's different skill set that in some cases that is needed, too. And I and I just think that it gives kids just a chance to develop into a well-rounded athlete. I I, and, you know, I mean, at at times I think these younger these younger kids, they play too much baseball. Other things that they can do, and I and I think they should go do that stuff while they have the opportunity to do it, because probably for most of them, the vast majority of them, you know, through high school is going to be the last opportunity that they have to play other sports. So so go do it. And I know that it's I know that it's more difficult to do than it was in the past because all these schools, you know, they the seasons just keep getting longer and longer. I mean, high school football goes all the way into you know, December and uh, basketball does overlap that, So it's hard for them to do both, but I, but I highly encourage the kids do it.
0: And and Johnny, are you seeing it? Cause I, you know, since I retired from MLB and I've done a lot of high school, I do a lot of high school football, high school baseball. Uh, it seems like if you're a high school football player, your second sport is track. You know, because the coach, your football coach, wants you to work on speed or, or or certain agility. There, it's not necessarily you're a football baseball player. You know, are are you seeing that as well?
2: Um, out here, I don't know that it's track per se. Um, I am seeing a few more kids that are are playing football and baseball, um, okay. basketball. Kind of, it's it's difficult to do, like just because the season. Uh, they miss so much of the high school season, although there's a little bit of that as well um but it's more football and baseball, and then typically what you see some of the kids do um they'll drop off of football their senior year if they think that they're a prospect and and have a chance to sign you know but uh but it's more football and baseball out here um but okay um but they're always. You know, and that's the other thing with these kids now too. I mean, they're they have so much more knowledge and so much more things that 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 they are turned on to that they can do to develop and to improve their skills. So, um, it's they're they're constantly seem seems like they're now working on their craft.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, you you can tell it's the kids are smart. There's no doubt. There's uh they get a lot of information whether it's via the internet, whether it's just, you know, being in, involved in so much, you know, playing so much, like in baseball for for instance, you know, uh, but they, they know what's going on. Obviously they, they're paying attention to and, and through travel type ball, everyone knows each other. So a great player in Georgia will know a great player in Florida. And I'm sure it's the same way in California, the various uh, it's so big California that different parts of the state, they they run into you in different tournaments and, you know, they're they know each other so well. Um, You know, so it, it is a, a fascinating time there. Uh, a guy I wanted to ask you about, because I think it's his birthday today, and a good friend of mine that I love covering it today, was Dontrell Willis. Uh, I think the D-Train, I think, is 42 today. And I believe you had, a, a you know, a hand in the Marlins acquiring D-Train from the Cubs back in the day uh, based on you seeing him in high school.
2: Yeah, so he went to Ensignal high School in Alameda which is actually right fairly close to where the oakland Coliseum is but and ansnal went through a period of time where they had pretty that's where Jimmy Rollins went to high school yeah. as well and so I would have in the january you know January right before late January early February every year I would have a um an invite only camp that i would do before their kids baseball season started and i always invited don trell so he came he came uh, a couple times and i got to know his mom pretty well and then so subsequently i think the cubs drafted yeah the cubs drafted him i want to say in the eighth round um but when yeah. we got him into trade i mean i got you know the the, the big question is is who is this kid you know because he was as you know don trell was a free spirited kid and like to have some fun and so on and so forth. So when we were making a trade for him um, with the Marlins, that was, that was the question that I, I needed to answer, you know, was who is he, what's he like? I mean, what type of kid has he ever been in trouble? You know, all those types of things with the background check, but um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he, he and another pretty good player named Cabrera, Came up at the same time and uh yeah. got me helped give me my uh one and only World Series ring.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd say they had a lot to do with it. You know? yeah. Um and, and certainly Dontrell and and happy birthday to the D trains. Uh I believe did he say um if if my if my memory serves, was Jimmy Rollins' brother on the team with Dontrell?
2: Yeah, Antoine Rollins. Yeah, I think yeah, Antoine was I wanna say he was a sophomore when Dontrell was a senior. Okay. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, obviously a lot, a lot of players there. Um, John, the other day, like I said, I I gave Stan a call and I caught up with Stan Meek and I said I was going to have you on. And he always noted how, um, you know, he always spoke highly. Obviously, you guys all speak highly of each other, know each other forever. But he was wanting, you know, he brought up that you helped the Marlins get Alex Vesia. And, uh, you know, he was kind of a, I don't know, 15th, 16th round a few years back who the Marlins ended up trading to the Dodgers um, for Dylan Floro. Uh, talk about, about seeing uh, Vessia and just kind of what it takes to kind of get, you know, the feel for that 15th, 16th round down player and and what, what stood out, you know, for people, you know, to know what went on there.
2: Well, so Alex, I'm a good friend of mine was a coach at Cal state East Bay where Alex went. And, and so he had a scout day and I went out there and I, and I saw Alex who was from San Diego and I, I looked at him and he was about obviously left-handed. I like Stan. I love left-handers, but, um, but he, you know, he was probably 84 to 87, you know, whatever, somewhere around in there. But I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, thinking back golly if i was at cal right now i would have recruited this guy i mean he's what's he doing in division two cal state east bay but and so i always i always kept going back and went back and checked on him his sophomore year and then his junior year and and he really hadn't he'd he'd gotten a little bit more velocity but he was still more in the 85 88 you know maybe touch a 90 and uh you know, he had a little bit of secondary stuff, and so I went out and I go, "Well, I've been in this for three years with this guy. I'm going back." And I and I went went to a game to watch him pitch, and I'm sitting in the stands, and um, he's you know he's 89, 90, 91, looks good. You know, he's got he's he's got a he's got a change up and a breaking ball now, and all of a sudden there's here's a 92, a 93. Another ninety-three, and the guys that were charting and behind home plate, his teammates are going. I've never seen this before, and so, and I was the only guy there, and um, so it subs. And this was getting late in the draft year, so I'm thinking, you know what? No one's going to come in here now. I mean, I'm I'm not able to steal this guy, but um, his word got out. But so, anyhow, that there's gradually was more and more people that came in. Alex, Alex would have went would have went in the top 10 rounds um, for a couple of reasons. One, he, his ability, his abilities said that he probably should have went, you know, as as a, a true eighth, ninth, 10th rounder. Um, but, um, but the other reason is, is he was a senior and you know, the way the draft draft is now is if you can get what's so-called a, a money saver, you know, where you don't pay what, the, what the amount of money that, that a, a kid might warrant in a certain round because as a senior and you'll, you'll take a guy like that. But Alex didn't, Alex did not have an agent. And scouting directors typically will not take a kid that doesn't have an agent because they're afraid that they're going to back out on a deal and you can't afford to lose them. So Alex just kept falling in the draft. And, and um, finally it was just like, we got to take this guy for crying out loud. And and we finally did. And um, he. <laughs> He had a quick track to the big leagues. I think he went through a a whole year dang near once he left low A and never gave up a run. Um,
0: Yeah, he had uh, 40 or so innings, if memory serves, without giving up a run. I think he gave up a home run in A ball to Alec Baum uh, when when Alec was in Clearwater with the Phillies. And then he went and gave up a run for like, 50, 60 innings. I'm like, it was very, and I think it spanned a couple of years. It was, it was a very fascinating ride that got him, you know, to move quickly to the big leagues. And yeah, I think, he climbed I think, like there, four
2: levels that year, if I remember right, he went from yeah, low A to yeah. high A to double A and actually ended up in triple A and then, and then went to the, got fall the big league. leagues.
0: Yeah. 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 I saw him in the fall league. Actually, I did see him in the fall league, I think in about 19 or right before the, yeah, 19, right before 20 when, uh, when it shut down and he ended up getting to the big leagues, I believe the COVID year with Miami and then got traded the next year. I think it was, but I think, uh, John, I think your story that you gave for our, for our audience. And we have, we have a lot of young people and, and older types that that listen, but if you're a player in the high school level or college level or a parent, I think what John just laid out that you could find, you know, you if, if persistence. And if you got some ability, you, you never know. Uh, John Hughes might be behind home plate watching you, you know, on some field that you never thought. And you might be a 16th or so rounder and find yourself in the big leagues because you just, you know, kept going at it. So I appreciate that story. Dave, jump in.
1: uh, John, you talked a little bit about what our young audience knows as the Pac 12. Used to be the Pac 10, at one time, the Pac 8. You knew it as the Pac 6 in baseball. Pay some homage to the Pac 12 uh i guess it's the Pac 2 now right there's two two teams left in it but uh you cut your teeth there there's some great history in there as far as baseball uh share some stories
2: about that oh my gosh that i just just i there's a lot of uh upset people out here i can tell you that it's it, it it's actually it's it's uh, it's really really sad um and then it's uh it's something that probably should have never taken place but um you know back when i was when i was coaching at cal um to go even further back real quickly but when i played at cal the 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 pack 8 was was separated so the only people that were in the baseball conference was cal stanford usc and ucla that was a period of time where ucla or usc was completely dominating i mean i think they won 5 5 straight four or five straight College World Series. And uh, and so then moving on to when I was coaching at Cal in the 80s, I mean, that was the era of the Mark McGuire's, the Terry Francona's. I mean, it was just on and on and on of just dominating quality players. And, and uh, in fact, I guess uh, what the SEC, SEC is anointed to be now is what the Pac- the pack was back then. And in baseball, we were what we called the six pack because it was Cal Stanford, USC, UCLA, Arizona, and Arizona state who Arizona state just had guys like, you know, Barry bonds and a few people like that. And, 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 uh, McDowell, and they were loaded too. And so we'd play home and home series and it was just an absolute war. So when anybody would get into a regional, um, you, (laughs) It was so big deal, right? I mean, I think in '88 when we ended up going to the World Series, they sent us to te- Austin, Texas. We won that regional. They sent Stanford somewhere to um, to on the East Coast. They won that regional. Arizona State hosted and won their regional. Um, it was ended up being Cal, Stanford, Arizona State. Anyhow, there, there was, I think there was three or four of us that made the college world series. And, um, so anyhow, it was a dominant league. And there's just been so many, so many players over time that have come out of, out of that conference. I, you know, and, uh, there was, I mean, I know that in 1980, when we went to the college world series, it was came down to us and Arizona and Hawaii and, um, there were some pretty good players in that world series, Frank Biola and John Franco, uh, were the two starting pitchers for, for St. John's, which fortunately we didn't play St. John's till game three. So we missed those guys, but Neil Heaton was there. And like, that was, that was the era of Terry Francona. And, um, and so there it, it was just a ton of people. And it, anyhow, it came down that we had all three had one loss and, uh, they gave Hawaii, uh, abide to the national championship game because they won their first game and Arizona and us both lost their first game. And so when we played Arizona, we knew whoever won that game was going to win them, going to win the national championship, which Arizona's, we were up eight to three and they came back and beat us, but, uh, they won that thing. But yeah, it's a, it's a great conference. It's got, you know, I mean, (laughs) Bill Walton, the conference of champions, but it's just really sad. It would have been highly ironic if, uh, Washington would have won the national championship in the last football game the Pac- Pac-12 ever played.
0: Yeah, and now Alabama may be getting the Washington coach. You know, if that comes,
2: <laughs> who knows yeah. how
0: that's going to play out? Yeah, you it's know. Uh, yeah.
2: you know, and it, it, it's interesting. And I don't know on top tangent. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that. But I mean, for 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 the West Coast and for the Pack in baseball, it's it's. It's not I mean, it's just not great. I mean, because, you know, I mean, parents like their kids to go to go to these go to these schools out here because they run up and down the coast. They you know, they can get to games. They they're all good places to visit, whether you're going down to Southern California or you're coming up to Northern California or you're going up the Northwest or Arizona. I mean, and they're short jaunts and the parents can afford now. I mean UCLA and USC, those teams. I mean, they're going to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, wherever you're going back there. You know, it takes a while before you're even going to play, and it's just a lot of travel, and it's just it's a very unfortunate situation. Yeah, I yeah. do hope they preserve uh, yeah. the
1: Rose Bowl, though, because they, you know, it's it's such a storied place, event, time. I I would love to see them make that the national championship game every year, yeah. on New Year's Day at the Rose Bowl.
2: What. What do they call it? The granddaddy of them all, right? Yep. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, John, I want you to talk about, because, you know, the the one thing I love about Stan Meek is he knows when he, obviously, you know, I think his track record speaks for itself. He he drafted so many great players. But, like everyone, you're going to miss on players. And he noted that you were right on a former Cal guy that he did not see it. And he said, you saw it. And the guy uh, ended up being a, a hell of a player, and he uh, just won a World Series with Texas as their second baseman, uh, Marcus Simeon. Tell us about how Marcus Simeon came out of Cal in, in 2011, sixth-round pick of the White Sox, and you were like, this guy is worth taking, and uh, you didn't uh, convince them. <laughs> so, the, the, tell us a little bit about Marcus Simeon.
2: Well, first first of all, the thing I want to say about Marcus, he. He was made right as a human being. He 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 had great work ethic. He was he was a he was a good human being. He he com- he committed and competed hard, but he was really kind of a, a he was a quiet performer, um, not a real vocal guy at that point in time. Not that he is now. He just he just he you know he led by example, and and I always liked the way that Marcus played. Was he? blowing people away in college with his bat. No. I mean, there was probably some question as to whether he could stay at shortstop. Um, but the whole package of him, I mean, he ran enough, he threw enough. He was athletic enough. It's just that he needed some refinement in his skills. And that, that was, that was my one thing that I said is just said he can, he can play and stay at shortstop, but he, he's going to take some development to do that. He just, you know, he needs some works on his first steps and his, and his angles and his routes. And there's nothing wrong with his bat. But again, um, you know, he didn't hit a bunch of home runs. He didn't light a th- lot of things up that way, but he was a good solid all around baseball player. And, uh, and, and one that you figured that was only going to get better because of his work ethic. And it was a body that could get stronger. And um, he certainly made that happen. And it's evident that, I mean, he, he, he did it because of his work ethic. And, and and as Marcus says, Ron Washington turned his, turned his whole career around, but, uh, but he worked at it and he committed to it and he just got better and better and better. I mean, initially he made, you know, he made a ton of errors when he first went out much like Derek Jeter did when he was a, when he was a first year, second year player, but, um, but yeah, so it was just, it was a great kid and just, you know, and I obviously, I always love Cal guys. I mean, kind of the standing story around here by scouts is, is that uh, this draft Cal players because they seem to find their way to the big leagues. Um, and and Marcus has, and, you know, he's obviously a phenomenal player, but he hasn't changed much. And he's, uh, he hasn't forgotten where he comes from. He comes back to Cal. He goes out on the field. He works with kids and he's, uh, and he's, you know, he's helped support our program a great deal at Cal.
0: You know that this is a great great uh insights from John Hughes. I really am, am thankful that you know we have John here today to tell these stories because it's right in our wheelhouse right dave i mean this is this is the type of stuff that makes our channel so so fun to do um and hopefully give gives messages to our audience to to see that the to Marcus Simeons, It didn't just happen overnight. You don't become a two hundred million dollar player with, and then win a World Series. You know he had to bounce around a little bit. He had to convince people that he had power. When you know, and John is astute enough to see something there when when others don't. Um, John, I want to you know, change gears a little bit because uh, I want to talk. You, you talk to you a little bit about you know you as a dad having a son in the sport um, and how special that is. That your boy. Uh, Dustin is with uh, I think with the the Orioles.
2: No, so he. Where is he now? Yeah. Okay, so I'll just give a quick story. Dustin. Dustin never played above JC baseball, but uh-huh. he, he could always catch. You know, he, a team, and t and this he was a good player. Don't get me, but I mean part of it was he just, you know, he struggled with, um, you'd never know it now, but I mean, he had some learning disabilities. You'd never know he's a perfectly normal, but it's, he just struggled with school, but, but he, he could always catch. And I used to always tell him, I go, listen, if you, if you can handle pitchers and, and, and they like you the way that you catch and your hands work, you can stay in this game a long time. I never thought this would happen, but but he, he started off, he, he, he got a job as a bullpen catcher for the Sacramento Rivercats with the A's, and uh, he'd hung there for six years doing that. Um, you know, it wasn't making much money, but, you know, he loved doing it. And so his first job he got was with the Cincinnati Reds and, and Brian Price, who, who I coached at Cal, um, he was one of my pitchers in the early eighties and he got a job with Cincinnati and he was with Cincinnati for four years. And then Brian got fired and they just, they cleaned house. And so that was when the next year was the year that, um, um, Brandon Hyde and Tim Cousins, um, mm-hmm. got the jobs at, with the Orioles, which, you know, as you know, Brandon and Tim were with our, yeah, in our player them. development staff with the Marlins the year we won the World Series, and so Dustin had developed a good relationship with Tim in the off season because he lives out here, and uh, so they hired Dustin there for a year, and then Bob Melvin had called me and he goes, "Hey, we we need Dustin, we need another BP thrower, we need Dustin in the bullpen. Do you think he'd like to come back to the A's?" I'm going, Mel. He loves it here in Baltimore with Tim and, and Brandon, but he lives in Sacramento. I mean, heck yeah, he wants to come home. So, so subsequently, Dustin and I both came over at the same time. Um, I came over from the Marlins to the A's. He came to the A's, and we actually signed our contracts together in the first, you know, when we signed them in 2020. So And so he and I have been together um, on the same team, which has been oh, which has been a lot of fun.
0: That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, Dave, jump in.
1: I, l- I like the common thread that you, you brought up today, John, and it seems to be the, the biggest mystery out there in this world of analytics where you didn't come out quite to say it, but you talked a lot about makeup today when we spoke about Brady, how he handled himself. Marcus Simeon, uh, the phrase I wrote down, he was made right as a human being. I love that phrase. Um, how... In your time, in this time of analytics, do you get that across to um, a world that loves numbers right now? That makeup is important.
2: Well, I think I think the true traditional baseball people don't ever lose sight of that, um, and it, it and it is a very important component. I mean, I, I'm I don't know. I, I, I mean I'd say I'm on the old school side, but I mean i analytics is a very important part of the game to me, and uh there's certainly a lot of value it's just with with the information that you're able to to dig up uh, but that being said you it can't drive the bus because these are human beings that are playing the game, and you can have all the numbers, but that the numbers aren't gonna tell you what's in their heart and what's in their head and 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 um you know just their their mental toughness that goes along with it and and i think that you know and i and i think that as time goes on i I always told this i've always said this to dustin when we've talked about this and the analytics has started to take over the game and 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 there were changes you know with the, the elevated swings, the launch angles and, and so on and so forth. I, and I said, the game, the game will take care of itself. It, it's always, people are always trying to change things and do things, but the game in itself is the same game and, and it'll level itself off. And, and I think you're starting to see that now where, you know, we don't have as many elevated swings. Why? Because once they started going elevated swings, pitchers learned to pitch up and, uh, I always say I pitched in the wrong era. I always had coaches telling me to get the ball down, but they, but so people making adjustments. And I think that that happens. I think that's happened some in the analytic world. I think that you saw last year that in some, in some cases with some organizations, pitchers started to go a little bit deeper into the game than they were. You know, they weren't so quick hook. If a guy looked like he was throwing right and he was on one of his days where, you know, it, everything was falling into place. Uh, They've like given him the green light to go a little bit longer. But, you know, it doesn't – the big thing, you know, when I talk with young scouts or whatever, it it doesn't matter how many tools you have if you don't have a toolbox. And, you know, and you've got – he's got to learn to, – he's got to be a guy that is going to be able to get to his tools. And the only way that guys are able to do that is if they're made right and they know who they are and they know what their commitment needs to be and so um i mean I, I think that's the only thing and I, and you see over time that you know the sometimes that's the why why the first rounders bust it's not because they aren't the talent talent wasn't evaluated right it's just you know the makeup the makeup went south and 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 you know that's that was always a topic of conversation i mean because the Expos and the Marlins harp makeup. You guys have to, you have to be right on your makeup. That's a very difficult task, particularly when you're dealing with high school kids, because when, when this number was important, I mean, I remembered, I remember, I asked the question, well, how are we supposed to evaluate what a guy's going to do when you hand him a million dollars that he's not going to change? I go, there's some people in this room that are scouts that would change if you hand them a million dollars, you know? So, but, but that is the core of what, I mean, These these guys that are laid around draft choices, you know, usually, usually they're made right, and 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 that's what allows them to. I'll just say, overachieve. They they get to their tools, and sometimes they play above their tools.
0: That that's a great answer, John. And it, when you just said uh, about about money and incentive, reminded me of. Back in the old days, uh, I used to work at the Tampa Tribune, which doesn't even exist anymore, and I covered the Buccaneers. And Jerry Angelo was the GM at one point or, or under the GM. He went on and went to the Super Bowl with the Bears as their GM a few years later. But he had noted, because uh, they drafted whatever the Bucs did, and they had some first-rounder, top, you know top-five-type pick, gave him like $5 million, which would have been like, you know, $20 million these days. And then he said, the risk, Joe, is you don't know if money is going to ruin incentive or kill incentive. And, um, you know, that's something that they wrestled with, obviously, in the NFL. And and you guys got to make that call, too, when you're giving money to these high school and and players or even, you know, free agents that sign for big money. And is that going to kill their incentive? Is this guy ready to, you know, make this kind of money?
2: Yeah. And, you know, and one thing I want to say, cause I, I, I don't, I want to go without mentioning the guys that I had an opportunity to work for, Eddie Creech, Jim Fleming, Stan Meek. They, they valued an area scout's opinion and voice because. As they told us, you guys see this guys a lot more than we do. We're going to come in and catch them once, maybe twice. The higher guys, will see a little bit more. But when we get down past the you know, third, fourth round, we're leaning on you guys because you guys are the ones that are around them more. You've been watching them for three years. You, you're you the ones that have seen him maybe 15, 16 times uh, over the course of a year or so of the summer. and And they let us scout. And they trust they they trusted our boys. And and Stan always said, he goes, I don't want a bunch of guys to agree with me. Because that that's saying that I'm never going to make mistakes. I make mistakes as much as anybody. He goes, but, you know, um, but I, you guys, the one thing I say, though, is that you better know your player. And you better know who he is and where he comes from. It doesn't mean that we're going to be right all the time on our makeup but we got to give ourselves the best chance to do it but those th- that's why you look and you I mean you look at the the guys that the Marlins and the Expos over time they might not have ended up playing for the Marlins and Expos but Stan Meek and those their, their names even still to day, Stan Meek's players are all over the major leagues right now you know you got what the LH Stanton um Miyamoto, I mean, he's had some great drafts. Yeah. There's oh, always yeah. several yeah. left handed pitchers throwing in there too. You can guarantee Yeah, they got you.
0: Garrett, <laughs> Braxton Garrett, and, and Trevor Rogers currently in right. the, you know, the, the Marlins.
2: you know. I and mean Heaney's uh, still pitching. Yeah, um, Heaney. Yeah. You can go on and on. They're all over the place.
0: Yeah, he always Stan always would he focus on pitching and left handed pitching. You know, there there was always and the one thing, and I it's uh, I'd like to see, you know, the Marlins do this philosophy again. You know, and, and even when Beinfest was was the, you know, the president of baseball ops, uh, he always wanted pitching returned in trades. So it's never just a Zach for Jazz Chisholm Jr. trade, which is a fascinating trade or Pablo Lopez for Luis Arise. And I know the Marlins do a couple of other guys in there. But they, I could just thought, how would the Binefest trade have looked like? They probably just wouldn't have looked like that. They would have been some pitcher, even if that guy was a reliever for you, or projected maybe a swing man or a, and you never know, you might find a fourth starter in there somewhere. Don was a throw in, right? When you get down to it. Yeah. You know, know, when, uh, when the Marlins made that trade, you know, so I I always found that kind of fascinating. Uh, Any last messages, John, We're we're getting, you know, Short on time. Any any little uh, advice you give to people wanting to get in the industry, either from a scouting standpoint or advice to players? What what you guys kind of look for from a player uh, when you're when you're at a ball game?
2: Um, for me, to to the players is that I've always said is is that from the moment that you walk out on the field, there's going to be for the for the scouts that, that work at it, there's going to be eyes on you. And they'll watch how you interact with your players, watch how you stretch, watch how you play catch, watch the way you go through things on the field. And that eyes are on you. And this game, this game owes you nothing. But if you commit to it and you put everything in your heart and soul into this thing, this game, this game can give an awful lot back to you. I mean, I, I never played pro ball but I got to play in college, but the doors that this game has opened up for me. And now when I look back on it, um, um, I never made a lot of money in in this game. As, as I say, I didn't get rich doing it, but I'm richer than many, many people just by the experience this game has given you. And it all started because because people trusted me and knew how I played the game. And they gave me a shot. I mean, Bob Milano... Bob Milano gave me the job at pitching coach, a job at Cal, and I hadn't coached any higher than JB baseball. But he knew who I was and he wanted the program to go with somebody that he knew that he, he was committed to or that was committed to what he was doing. And so when you you know when you come to the ballpark, act like you care, you know, and play hard. Um and sh- and you know if you can throw then throw, if you can run then run. Show I always tell kids do something on the field that makes us want to like you. But if you act like the game owes you something and you don't play well that day, we probably aren't coming back. But if you act if you act like you care and you, and you play hard, you'll catch our eye and you know, I kind of like this guy. I'm going to wait a couple of weeks and I'm going to come back. So, you know, just, just act like the game, you know, act like you love the game and and, and play that way
0: great, great stuff. Uh, Dave, in closing, what do you got?
1: No, just thanks so much, John. I think your messages were right on par with what our audience needs to hear. And Joe, as usual, fantastic interview to our sponsors. Uh, you know, we heard about Liquid IV, Zencaster. Make sure our audience supports those that are supporting us and Blackout Coffee. Coffee's on Joe this year. Uh, Joe F 20 at checkout gets you your first purchase 20% off. After that, use his link to get 15% off. And our newest partner, Jaw Bats, can't wait to see uh, those things in action this spring training uh, at checkout RVG. Get you 20% off anything and everything you want as many times as you want. So please take advantage of that. And Joe, we're up to episode 409 right now. Can you believe that? All uh, 64,000 subscribers. So that's what I got here. I'll let you close us out.
0: Yeah. Again, John Hughes, thanks so much, buddy. I, I really appreciate it. Best of luck this year. Thanks for carving some time. Uh, And we hope to have you back at some point as well.
2: Thank you guys very much. It was fun. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Dave, uh, the same. Great show. Uh, John, hang on as we close out, uh, just so we can sync you up. Uh, But everyone... um, uh, just like, like Dave said, episode, what, 409 in the books. Uh, we'll be back at it next week with another guest. Spring training is around the corner. Look forward to some some really fun conversations as we move this thing forward this year. With that, I'm Joe Forcero, Man on Second, and we are out of here.